You're listening to the St. Mark's Podcast for February 13th, 2022, the sixth Sunday after the Epiphany. Today's sermon was given by the Reverend Dr. Justin Crisp. It's based on 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 12 through 20. If Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation has been in vain. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Grace and peace to you and to all those of you joining us on the stream from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So, as my opening sentence of Scripture uh, indicates, I'm not actually going to preach this morning on the Luke and Beatitudes. Uh, I decided that um, in our weekly podcast, Revved Up for Sunday, Father Peter, Reverend Elizabeth, and I did a much better job together at treating the Luke and Beatitudes than I could ever do by myself, so I commend the podcast to you if you've not heard it yet. What I'm interested in this morning is our reading from 1 Corinthians, which is provocative and difficult in the kind of either-or-ness of Paul's thinking here. Paul's thinking is very different from a story I once heard about an Episcopal seminary professor. I can't remember where I heard the story, who told it to me. I remember when I heard it. It was sometime when I was in college. And I can't even remember which seminary it was, except that it wasn't the one that the three of us went to. The professor asked his students, soon to be ordained, to imagine that one day they turned on the news, let's say it was a Saturday night, they turn on the news, and the headline is, they've found Jesus' body. Archaeologists in Israel found Jesus' body, and the evidence that they have is incontrovertible. This was the body of Jesus of Nazareth, which meant that the tomb was, in fact, not empty on Easter morning, and that the resurrection did not take place as the Gospels reported it. And the professor asked the room, full of soon-to-be priests, what they would do the next day, on Sunday. And they looked around at each other and looked befuddled and confused, and many of them said, well, I'd have to quit. (laughs) I just put in my letter of resignation that I would quit the priesthood. Or some of them said, well, I would stand in the pulpit and I would say that I'm sorry. On behalf of the church, I'm sorry. We've all been a part of a massive sham. And the professor waited for the room to quiet down, and he sagely intervened. I'm surprised that you think Christianity is so fragile as that. If Jesus' body were found tomorrow, it wouldn't change anything for me. The deeper truth of his resurrection would still be true. That life emerges from loss and strength from suffering. And in that sense, the story I have given my life to would still have been the greatest thing we've ever come up with. It's profound in its own way, the professor's response to this story. And I remember whenever I heard it, I thought it was profound. It was the way that I thought about things for quite a long time. I think St. Paul would have failed this professor's class. And I think that this professor would have failed St. Paul's. And that's what I'm curious about today. Paul's first letter to the Corinthians ends with an intervention and a disagreement among the Corinthians about whether there will be a resurrection 
of the dead. And Paul argues that those who don't believe in the resurrection of the dead don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus either. Now, this is not a sermon about the resurrection of the dead. I preached before the most recent time on the first Sunday of Advent about how I think life after death works, for lack of a better word. Um, But this morning, I'm interested in the fact that Paul's saying forcefully that if Christ's resurrection wasn't real, if it didn't actually happen, then his proclamation and our faith is for nothing. That's what he says. Why does St. Paul make Christianity so fragile, so vulnerable to being proved wrong, and so hard to believe? I think it's because, for St. Paul, Christianity is the religion of the Incarnation. It's the religion of the Word made flesh, flesh which walked around, flesh which talked and ate and drank and died. And, well, the claim is that this flesh rose. It's the religion of a God who enters into history. It's the religion of the God of history. And this religion makes claims of that history, claims which Paul doesn't want to allow us to magic into metaphors too quickly, even if it would make them easier to swallow. As I tell our middle schoolers in the eighth grade confirmation class, that history begins with some facts, facts which are corroborated by non-Christian historians outside of the Bible. So you don't have to be afraid that the author is trying to sell you something or make a buck off of you. So not people who are sympathetic to Christianity, but quite the opposite. And these facts are that Jesus was a real person that he really died in the first century, that people really followed him after he died, and that many of those people died too as a result. Take, for instance, the first century Roman historian Tacitus. So in a passage from Tacitus's Annals, written in the first century, He's describing the Emperor Nero's response to rumors that Nero had started the Great Fire of Rome in 64 AD himself. That's the context of the passage. And Tacitus writes that Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace. Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilatus. Covered with the skins of beasts, they, meaning Christians, were torn by dogs and perished, or were nailed to crosses, or were doomed to the flames and burnt, to serve as nightly illumination when daylight had expired. The passage is awful. That's terrible. He's saying, Tacitus is saying that they burn these people in order to light up the night. It's horrifying. Again, doesn't come from a historical source who's sympathetic to Christians, right? He's no friend of Christians. You don't have to be worried that this guy's trying to sell you something. But there it is. Those are the facts. And the fact that any of it is so, I suggest to the eighth graders, requires an explanation of some kind. Because Jesus was a nobody. Okay, we think that Jesus was a great celebrity. 
And it's true, he had enough of a following that the Sanhedrin, the Jewish high council, and Pontius Pilate saw fit finally to conspire together to execute him. But to observers of Roman and Jewish history, Jesus of Nazareth was a blip. Okay, Tacitus gave, gives him one sentence. <laughs> gives the guy one sentence in a passage which is describing a rumor which is going around about an emperor. That's it. Kevin Moynihan and Kathleen Corbett are bigger deals than Jesus was. Now, there were people who claimed to be messiahs before Jesus, and there were people who claimed to be messiahs after Jesus, many of whom actually got further along in fighting the Romans, which is what first century Jews, many of them, expected of messiahs. Bar Kokhba is an example if you want to Google him. If you're online, you might Google him right now instead of listening to the rest of the sermon. We cannot overestimate, I think, how devastating and disorienting Jesus' death would have been for the people who followed him while he was alive. In all four Gospels, the embarrassing fact is embarrassing for the church. The embarrassing fact is recorded that Jesus is very nearly deserted at his death. Different Gospels have different versions of who was there, but it's not very many people. And understandably so, these people thought that Jesus had failed. Messiahs were supposed to liberate the Jewish people from Rome. They weren't supposed to end up dead by Romans' hands. At the very least, they were worried that even if he hadn't failed, they were going to end up dead too. And they actually think so even after they get the news that the tomb is empty. So take the Gospel of John, for instance. In John, Mary Magdalene is the one who finds the tomb empty. And in different Gospels, it's different people. But in John, it's Mary Magdalene, finds the tomb empty, and she weeps because she thinks not that Jesus was alive, but that somebody had stolen the body. That's Mary's first thought when the tomb is empty. Not that it's good news, it's bad news. And then she sees and she talks to the risen Christ, whom she mistakes initially for the gardener. And then she goes to the twelve to report what has happened. And John says that after that, after Mary's told the disciples what's happened, when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and the doors of the house where the disciples had met were locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Now, every part of that sounds realistic to me. When Jesus appears to the disciples for the first time, it seems realistic to me that they would still be in hiding, even though they had learned or heard a report from Mary Magdalene that the tomb was empty. It seems realistic to me psychologically that it would take Jesus coming to them in person to get them out of hiding. They're like, wow, okay, Mary, maybe you're right. It's not worth risking my life for that. Maybe the tomb's empty. Cool. But I'm still going to try and protect myself. Jesus appears. They see him. They talk to him. That's one explanation of how you can get psychologically, how a human being can get psychologically from terror and devastation to starting a movement dedicated to this guy, many of them losing their lives because of it. And they did, as Tacitus noted. 
persecutions of Christians were sporadic. Okay? They were not uniform. It depended on who the emperor was, what his and local leaders' policies were, etc. But persecutions of Christians began under Nero in the 50s and 60s, and then were on again, off again, until the legalization of Christianity by Constantine in the 300s. One of the worst persecutions was spearheaded by the emperor Diocletian, for those of you following along at home who are Googling instead of um, listening to the sermon. And the Romans didn't just kill the plebes, okay? They didn't just kill the underlings. They killed the leaders. They killed St. Peter and St. Paul by the time he was done. Killed Peter. Peter, whose cowardice is so legendary that the Gospels record it in embarrassing technicolor, which gives us reason to think it probably actually happened, that he probably was that terrified and cowardly around Jesus' death. Because why else would the Gospels record such an embarrassing fact about somebody who became a leader in the early church? Perhaps it was because it was true. The same Peter who denies Jesus three times, according to the Gospels, when the police ask him on the night Jesus died, or the night that Jesus was arrested, excuse me, do you know him? This Peter, it's thought, wasn't just killed by the Romans, he was crucified too. That's a suggestion that's embedded in a passage in the Gospel of John, which some scholars think was written late enough so that John's author would know of how Peter died. And something has to have happened, I think, something. There's some need for some explanation of how Peter and others got there from a locked upper room. And I just, I'm just not convinced it was that they sat around and they decided that Jesus' memory needed to live on. Or that the resurrection would be a really inspiring metaphor for human perseverance. That's the kind of thing that makes your pulse quicken at a book club. It's not the kind of thing that takes you to an electric chair. I think these people either lied, spun a lie that this man who really was dead was alive, in order to deceive and defraud massive numbers of people, ostensibly for their self-benefit, and then they died to keep it a secret. They either lied or they were delusional. They were deceived, perhaps, by their senses, by their minds, by their imaginations, into thinking they had seen this guy alive again, and talked with him, and ate with him, when they actually hadn't. Either of these could have been the case, okay? I admit, one, two explanations of how you get from cowardice to a cross is you could be lying or you could be deceived. But I think it's just as likely, not to mention simpler, to think that what got them from cowardice to crosses was exactly what they said it was that they had a real-life experience of this real-life guy, Jesus, once dead, now alive. <clears throat> but if they weren't telling the truth, if they were liars or lunatics, I really do think Christianity is a big joke, and I would really rather do something else with my life.
I'd rather you all did something else with your Sunday. Which isn't to say it's not a great story. It is a great story. It's the greatest story we've ever told. It was C.S. Lewis who observed that Christianity has the character of a myth. Myths, Lewis thought, presented universal human truths in the form of stories. So take um, Orpheus and Eurydice, for example. So Orpheus leads Eurydice by the hand, only to turn back and see that Eurydice has vanished from his sight. And this is a way of depicting through a story the truth, the universal truth, that concrete reality fades away the moment we begin to reflect on it with our minds, the moment we try to think about the pew abstractly. The, pew, the real pew disappears and we start concentrating on an idea which is not actually the pew. Okay, that didn't work for you. Let's try again. Darth Vader. Okay, that'll work. Darth Vader kills his master, Emperor Palpatine, okay? The evil Emperor Palpatine out of love for his son, Luke, in order to save Luke's life. And he suffers fatal injuries in the process. Emperor Palpatine's force lightning recoiling back upon Palpatine and on Darth Vader. And so Vader is going to die. And when he dies, he turns back at his death to the light side from the dark side. And he brings balance to the force. This is a story which tells the universal human truth that self-sacrificial love transforms us and our world for good. And Lewis says that Christianity is also a myth. It's a myth that God writes in history. God writes the universal truth that life does emerge from loss and strength from suffering in an actual historical death that actually historically was transformed into life and which transforms all of our deaths into life too. It is a myth which is also a fact, he says. At least that's the claim. That's what Christianity puts out there for debate and consideration and evaluation. That's the claim. It's a myth that is also a fact. And anything else robs Christianity of both its shock and its value, not to mention its shock value. If we find it hard to believe, and I sometimes do, really I do, we should remember that the disciples found it hard to believe too. But I think we should give them the courtesy, with all due respect to my apocryphal professor, of taking it just as seriously as they did. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. You can find more sermons on our website, www.stmarksnewcanaan.org.